Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. I am one of the pastors here if I've not yet met you. Um, and whether you're joining us online or you're here in person with us, it is such a gift to be able to gather for worship with all of you. This morning, we mark All Saints. All Saints is the day throughout the church in which we remember the faithful who have passed on. The family members, the friends, the teammates, the coaches and teachers and mentors and colleagues or neighbors, essentially the ones whom the writer of Hebrews says were commended for their faith. Today we remember especially the impact of these ordinary saints on our faith. In light of all saints, this morning's call to worship comes to us from Hebrews chapter 12. I invite you to ponder these words with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This morning, we remember the saints who have gone before us. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that you and I are saints in training, that we are to embody a faith that is worthy of sainthood. In gratitude to our triune God for the love, grace, and mercy that he lavished upon us and that he continues to lavish upon us as we run the race that is marked out for us, let us join our voices with the choir of heaven this morning. Would you stand and sing with us?
Well, friends, as you have already heard, today is All Saints Sunday, a day where we, with greater uh, intentionality, seek to remember the ones who have gone before us and to give thanks for them. So we're going to enter into a moment of prayer, but I want to invite you to keep your eyes open for this prayer, first because it's built around the Beatitudes, and we'll share those together out loud as they're printed on the screen. Jess and I will lead the rest of the prayer, but the prayer will then also conclude by lighting these candles on the outer rim of the stage, representing the saints in our faith community who have died in the past 12 months. With that, I invite you to join me in prayer with your eyes open. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we turn to you in prayer this morning, we join with Jesus in saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we thank you, O God of all ages, for the imperfect yet faith-filled lives of the saints who have been a great cloud of witnesses before us. We join with them in recognizing our dependence upon you to live as citizens of the kingdom of the heavens. And together we join with Jesus in saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We thank you, O God of all ages, for the hunger and thirst that has drawn your people throughout history to seek after you. We walk in their footsteps and ask that you would fill us even as you filled them. And together we join with Jesus in saying, Blessed, Blessed are, are the merciful, merciful for, they for they will be shown mercy. We thank you, O God of all ages, for the mercy you have abundantly shown the saints that we remember today. May we join with them in being conduits of your mercy to the world. And together we join with Jesus in saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We thank you, O God of all ages, for the peacemakers that populate our shared faith history, sometimes at great cost to themselves. As your children, we join them in asking for true peace that can only come from you. And together, we join with Jesus in saying, Blessed, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We thank you, O God of all ages, for the lives of the martyrs, for those who have paid the ultimate price in following you. Even now, we pray also for Christians around the globe who are currently experiencing persecution or suffering because they claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we join with Jesus in saying, Blessed, Blessed are those who mourn, for they, for they will, will be, be comforted. comforted. We thank you, O God of all ages, specifically for the lives and witness of those in our faith community who have passed away in the past 12 months and who we mourn the loss of. We name them before you as we light a candle and remember each one of them. We remember together Mary Ossink, Anna Bruchart. Catherine Genuit. Bill Knowles. 
Eleanor Lake. Pam Reynolds. Darlene Winter. Christine Venek. And one more candle for unnamed friends and family of this congregation. As we remember these loved ones, O oh God, we ask for your comfort and ongoing grace that their light and witness of faith will continue to shine in this world and in our lives. May we be encouraged to press on to follow you, even as you have strengthened them to finish their race. Bring us also into the communion of your saints for the sake of your kingdom. We pray this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.
Friends, as we remember the saints who have gone before us, and even as we ourselves seek to be saints, as the New Testament so describes us, we recognize that for both them and for us, it is only because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we have peace with God and peace with one another. So the peace of Christ be with you. Would you take a moment and share a sign of that peace with those nearby you? And as you make your way back to your seats, I'll say the Lord be with you. My name is Ross Dielman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together it is our mission to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We're glad for the many of you who are already seeking to live that way in our midst. And if you are new, we'd love to get to know you. We have connection cards available at the Welcome Center. And if you would like to make yourself known, we'd love to get to know you all the more. There's a few celebrations in our midst that we want to call out, uh, particularly in West Michigan. Uh, locally, we're celebrating with West Ottawa girls cross-country team that they just won state yesterday. Come on. <laughs> Including several of our own on that team. Thanks be to God for that. And also Holland Christian Boys soccer just won state as well. Come on. So thanks be to God for that. For teams to play in and sports to enjoy, we give thanks to God and uh, how fun it is that West Michigan is representing so well this particular year. Uh, trivia night is coming up. You can grab one of these. This is for us uh, locally here as well. Trivia night is a great night in which our youth kind of sponsor a fun night food and trivia, laughter and joy. You can sign up alone. You can sign up with a team. It is a super fun night, and the proceeds of that night go towards our youth going out on mission in the summer. Uh, the date is November 19. More information is available on cards that look like this one, and you're invited to sign up and join in the festivities. Also, on the back of our bulletins, more graphics. You see that we are into a new month, and we're calling it here at Fellowship No Scrooge November, which is a play on No Shave November, but we're saying No Scrooge November, which is an invitation for us in anticipation of December and Christmas time being a very spendy time to also be intentional about being generous on behalf of others. You'll hear more about that from Pastor Nate in the message as well. Today, I hope you don't have plans for lunch yet because it is here. We will go from table to table, the communion table here, to the lunch table in the gym, and it is a harvest soup theme uh, with other foods as well. So please stick around and enjoy some uh, fellowship time for as long or as little as you'd like today, that is, for lunch. And at this time, I'd like to invite our kids to be dismissed to your various places, and we will continue in worship through singing. We invite you to join us in this next song, learning a new song to us. Um, as Pastor Tierra reminded us in the call to worship, um, Hebrews 12 invites us to, with 
since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And so we join the saints of old, we join each other and the saints around the world in singing a thousand hallelujahs to the only one who's worthy of our praise. Let's sing together. Glory taught the stars to shine. 
You may be seated. Let's pray. You alone, O oh God, deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise. And so as we open your word for us this morning, we pray that we might fall more in love with you, that we might worship you, and that we might respond in faith, giving you all the glory, the honor, and the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, our uh, text comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. It's a very awesome story about Naaman. So listen for the word of the Lord from the book that we love, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out before and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only the ma my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 pairs of clothing. The letter that he took then the letter that he took to the king of Israel said, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why, why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message. Why have you to torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash yourself, seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abna and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters here in Israel? Couldn't I wash there and be cleaned? So he turned off, so he turned and went off in a rage. rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now that I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. 
Does God heal? Sometimes. Does God save? Always. This was the conclusion to one of the more memorable sermons uh, in my life that I have ever heard. It was offered by Sam Wells, the chaplain at Duke University at the time, who had come to town for something and was preaching at Third Reformed Church some 15 years ago. It was on a, a healing story in the gospel. I don't remember exactly which one it was 15 years ago. And he stood in the pulpit and he ended his sermon. Does God heal? Sometimes. Does God save? Always. Does God heal? Sometimes. Does God save? Always. And then he just slowly walked backwards out of the pulpit and sat down. The story of Naaman can rightly be read as a healing story. His skin was covered in leprosy, therefore he was an outcast to society. However, through some unusual circumstances, he finds himself by the Jordan River. He dips seven times and he is cleansed. He is healed. All that was wrong was made right for him, an act that only God could do. And it turns out well for him, too, because he ends up converting. He testifies that there's no God in all the world except for the one in Israel. Amen and amen, a great healing story. Don't we all yearn for a similar kind of story for ourselves? Don't we look for, to God to do, tell us to do something really basic, really obvious, like dipping in the water of Lake Mactawa with your toes seven times or something, and then we can be healed. We yearn for healing, physical healing, some of us, from the diseases that we carry with us, like cancer or Parkinson's or the, the aches and pains that we have with our chronic pain. Some of us yearn for mental healing, don't we? For the, from the depression or anxiety that is like a backpack that we can't seem to shake off. Some of us yearn for social healing, sick of being left out, wondering if how long we'll be alone, wondering if we'll ever fit into society. Many, if not all of us, want a miraculous healing, a clear directive so that we might be healed, so that we might be made well. All the things that are going on in our life might be made right. The story of Naaman is a fabulous story, a testimony to God's power to heal. But that might not be the main point of the story. I think the story reveals something else about what God wants. God doesn't only want to heal Naaman, or you and me, God wants to save us. Naaman was healed from his leprosy, yes, but more importantly, maybe, Naaman needed to be healed, to be saved from the idolatry of himself. Now, can I confess something to you this morning? I'm going to, so you can't really say no. Um, but I, uh, I sometimes yearn to be special, a little different, you know, see myself as a little highly, more higher than everyone else. And I remember in college, I went to Wittenberg University and they had a number of those little secret societies. Have you heard of these where they wear a fancy pin or a little bow on their thing and then they walk around in unison or something like that. And they prayed through the, caf the cafeteria or through the campus and everybody's like, oh, who are those people? I want to be like them. And truth be told, I was kind of hoping that someday my shoulder would be tapped and that I might be chosen for the secret society. Not only that, but I, I sometimes uh, had an experience recently where I yearned to be special and unique. I, I had heard from some people um, that there's a different way of traveling through an airport. 
I didn't know about these, but apparently there's these things called airport lounges. Have you heard of these? For the commoners like me, you might not know about them, but I was determined to figure out about them, so I signed up for a United credit card so that I could get two free passes to the United Club. You know about these airport lounges? So the, uh, some of us, you know, go to restaurants with terrible service and overpriced burgers and very expensive pop and, and pay a ton of money to wait with all the noise and all the chaos of an airport. Other people that uh, are in a different stratosphere, maybe, uh, get to go to the lounge where the doors open up automatically. And I did this once with my free card, my free pass. I'm going to do this. I'm getting in there. Showed my pass. I get in and, man. It is nice. The decibels go from like 175 to like 10. And then you have these big cozy chairs with chargers for your phone and for your computer. And you just sit. And not to mention, there's a buffet in there. All these healthy food options, drinks aplenty, all for free once you're in. It's awesome. I don't like to admit it, but I kind of like going there. Yeah, for those practical reasons, but also the broken side of me likes to feel a little special a little different than the commoners waiting in the terminal. Apparently, I'm not alone because it's a billion-dollar industry, the credit card industry, and they create these, these uh, fancy lounges for people like us to lust after. But Naaman also sees himself as different, unique, and special. He's a five-star general, the commander of the great army of Aram. He is the pride of his king, a valiant man, courageous and hardworking for sure. And because of that, though he desperately wanted to be healed from his leprosy, he wanted it to be about himself. He wanted to save himself. But God, in this story, ends up saving him from himself. God's purpose in this story is twofold. Yes, he wanted to heal him from his leprosy, but God wanted to save Naaman from the idolatry of himself. Interestingly, though, he uses three servants, three people that are not unique, different, or even special in any sense of the word in that time to reveal to Naaman some of the core lies that he was living with the three lies that, he, that were, expo- were exposed by these servants. So I want to look at each of these servants and Naaman's core lie. The first thing that Naaman had to be saved from was the lie that his influence was going to save him. Do you notice what Naaman did right after he heard a word about the, the servant girls, uh, about the prophet in Israel, word about the prophet in Israel? Where did he go? Who did he go to? He went to the king, which is really interesting because he is the commander, a great and powerful commander. He could have certainly gone and found the prophet on his own, couldn't he have? He knew where she was from. He took her from her homeland. He grabbed her from her family and brought her home to be his wife's servant. He knows where she's from. He could have gone there, and he has a whole commanding army. He certainly could have found a measly prophet in Israel. He had tons of people, and he had autonomy. He could do whatever he wants. He was the commander of the army. Why doesn't he just go find the prophet in Israel? Why does he go to the king first? Because Naaman wanted it to be about him and who he knew, the influence he had with the king of Israel. He didn't want this little servant girl to be responsible for his healing. She was Naaman's first clue that he can't save himself. 
that his influence won't matter because, in fact, the letters that the kings wrote were of no use almost, except for the fact that Elisha, a prophet, somehow heard of them and pulled uh, Elisha towards him. This is a good reminder to us, for those of us who feel like we have no influence that we don't matter, that no one notices our work. The story of Naaman's wife's servant is a testimony and a physical reminder that God uses, God speaks through, and the vulnerable, common people of this world, the people that seem to feel no special or specialness or uniqueness. I can't help but think of a trip that we're about to take, a few of us from Fellowship Church down to Juarez, Mexico this week. We're leaving on Wednesday to go visit one of our global mission partners, Frontera de Gracia. It's a church in Juarez, Mexico, right along the border of Mexico and the United States that has chosen to transform their sanctuary space and the rest of their building into a place of refuge primarily serving women and children who find themselves trapped at the border crisis and are now sleeping on mattresses strewn throughout their sanctuary. I wonder how these people would read the story of Naaman and this little servant girl. I also wonder what word does God have for us that they might offer. The first servant girl is a clue to Naaman that he can't save himself that God is in the process of saving him from himself, from his privilege of influence and the relationships that he has. The second lie that Naaman has to be saved from is that his wealth could somehow save him. What does Naaman do after he gets this letter from the king? He packs up his chariots with lots of things, like 10 shekels of silver and 30 shekels of gold or whatever. Apparently, a commentator said that that would amount to about $80,000. And that was pre-inflation uh, the last couple of years, so that's worth at least 150 grand today. Come on. But what makes me really curious, whether it's 80000 or 150000 is why did he take 10 sets of clothes? Who needs clothes when you have 150 grand in the chariot? I mean, that'd be like, oh, here's 100 shares of Apple stock, and here's 50 shares of Amazon stock, and oh, by the way, I got a bag full of Birkenstocks and luxury quality hotel robes in the bag too. Why list the clothes? And why such detail about all the money that he carried? What's its significance? Is it just trying to show that Naaman had a lot of things? I wonder, reading between the lines of this story, if Naaman wanted to use his wealth and his riches, his clothing, to save himself, to earn his healing, to assure that he had something to do with what was about to happen to him. So, when Elisha's little servant boy answers the door after uh, Naaman comes up with all of his loot in the chariot and his fine clothes, probably even a bodyguard next to him, and knocks on the door of Elisha's house, and he's greeted by a little servant boy? What? Are you kidding me? Naaman's upset, frustrated, beside himself. And later on in the story, we read that Elisha didn't even take the money. He didn't even want it as a gift to say thank you. Naaman was being confronted with the fact that wealth can buy you a lot of things, but it can't buy healing, and it can't save you from yourself. 
which is really good news maybe, or a good reminder for those of us who know that reality all too well, for those of us who struggle to pay our bills, for those of us who wonder where we'll get the money for the surprise car repair that we need to do, for those of us whose hearts sink when our kids ask us about going to camp or want a, want a desire to play club sports. Elisha's, through his servant, made it clear. Wealth is not a prerequisite for God to heal you, for God to save you, for God to use you for his kingdom purposes. It's not that wealth is bad in and of itself. Elisha ends up giving all the wealth back to Naaman. It's not like he's going to hold it and teach him a lesson. Instead, our wealth is a gift that we've been given, that we are to freely share, not worship the way that Naaman did which is why I'm really excited and really grateful that the mission crew and the generosity team again this year has decided to do this no Scrooge November thing. It's a way for us to practice not being like Naaman, not being like Scrooge and, and worshiping and making an idol out of our wealth, but rather generously with joy, sharing it with the, for the good things that God is doing in our own community and it's not just for those of us who already practice generosity. It's for our kids. It's for our neighbors. It's for anybody to get involved in because it's so much fun. You can go out there and grab an ornament from a Christmas tree and buy a gift for a family so that they can come to this place and go to the Hope Christmas store and actually buy gifts with dignity for their kids so parents and kids can experience the joy of giving. You can pack a gift card and an envelope for Bethany Christian Services and empower and equip a foster family who has given so much of themselves to welcome a stranger into their own home so that they can buy a gift for their foster children. You can pack a box with practical items like household goods and cleaners so that a family that is vulnerable in our community might have a little easier time over the holidays. Or you can give some spare change a little money to help pay off some of the kids who have tremendous lunch balances at some of the West Ottawa school, the elementary schools in our area. All really, really, really cool ways to learn from, our, from Naaman and not let our wealth be so stinking important to us. So God used two servants, Naaman's wife's and Elisha's so far, to remind Naaman that his influence and his wealth can't save him. Lastly, God used Naaman's own servant to remind him of his, that his desire for fame, that also won't save him. In the final scene of the story, after all that Naaman's gone through, after he's knocked on the door, he hears the message that he has to go and dip in the rivers of the Jordan River seven times and he can be healed. The Jordan River Forget that. Naaman wants to bail. Why does he want to bail? Because God was not acting in his life in the way that he wanted him to. He, didn't, he wanted a wand. He wanted a spectacle. He wanted a show. But he tells him to go to the Jordan River. The Jordan? Do you know how nice the rivers are back at home? I mean, the, the Abinar and the, the Fartar, or whatever it's called, are beautiful. I mean, this is like paradise back at home. Clean water, I can be refreshing. I don't want to get take a bath in Lake Macca toilet. Come on. <laughs> I can understand a little bit why. I mean, wouldn't you rather choose to take a bath in Lake Michigan rather than to go to Ohio and some damned up river that has a made up beach? 
I mean, that's the kind of comparison that's going on here. This, is not, this, this water is nothing like the water back home. In fact, it's said that the water back home, according to, to, to ancient legend, the prophet Muhammad said of that, those rivers that Naaman was referring to, that that was like paradise. It was beautiful. It was stunning. And he wouldn't even enter into that river valley because he believed falsely, that paradise, that he could, a man could only enter into one paradise, and he was going to wait for the eternal paradise, not go into that paradise. It was a beautiful place. Why would I go in this dingy, gross, minute little Jordan River when I can go home and be cleaned in the beautiful rivers of the Abnar and the Fartar? I don't think it's just about the contrast of the rivers either. I wonder if he wanted to be cleansed at home in the beautiful waters back at home so that other people could see him, so that other people could celebrate who Naaman was. He wants the glory, the fame of being healed in public, in his hometown, in the beautiful rivers of the Abnar and the Fartar. After he realizes that his influence couldn't save him, after he realizes that his wealth was of no use, after he realizes that his healing is not going to be filled with glory or fame, he's done. He pieces out. He runs off in a fit of rage and is about to abandon the whole plan that God has for him. If not, for the courage of yet one more little servant, Naaman's very own servant, who asked, the same question that Jesus ultimately asked us. Don't you want to be healed? You can't save yourself, Naaman, but you still want saving, don't you? He finally realized that this influ his influence, his riches, his fame weren't helpful. The only posture necessary, the only thing he could do was humbly receive received the gift that he couldn't earn, that he couldn't do anything to manufacture. Does God choose to heal? Sometimes. Does God want to save us? Does God want us to save us from the idolatry of ourselves? Always, always, always. And God uses humble, vulnerable people like servants with open hands that are willing to be used by God. Maybe you need healing this morning. But I can assure you that we all need that kind of saving, don't we? A book I was reading recently uh, referred to a quote by Parker Palmer. Uh, it's a concept that he had in his book, Hidden Wholeness. And he talks about two different ways to respond to kind of a broken heart. And I think it's kind of helpful uh, for this story of Naaman. The first way that Parker Palmer imagines our hearts being broken is more like shattered, you might say, into numerous small pieces. Imagine like a, a mug that falls on the ground and is broken into numerous different pieces. The second way he imagines our hearts being broken is into new capacity, split, open, you might say, to hold more of the world's suffering and joy, more of the world's and our own despair and hope. I think Naaman's heart was broken with leprosy. And his first response was to try to gather and capture all of the broken pieces and put it together himself. But finally, in the River Jordan, he realized that he needed to allow God to use his heart to hold more, hold more of joy and pain, more despair and suffering, 
of his own. What if God is breaking your heart, opening it up for larger capacity to receive God's love and care for you so that you might also be able to hold more of the world's joys and pains? I'm not sure what the anatomy of God's divine heart is like, but I can't help but think that God's heart is being broken open more and more and more as he sees so much of the pain and suffering of our world and in our very own lives. And I can't imagine how wide open God's heart has already been broken after sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into this world, the same one that was insulted, mocked, and eventually crucified on the cross. Because it's there that we see God's broken heart for this world that has been split open to be filled It is there that we are reminded of the unfathomable love of our God for you and for me. This morning, Jesus invites us to remember that love for you at this table because it is here at this table that we are reminded of God's love for us, that our worldly influence can't manipulate us into being more worthy recipients of here is here at this table that we are reminded that that love is a, a love that our wealth cannot buy. It is here at this table that we are reminded that it is a love that our fame in this world melts in comparison to the fame of a God whose heart has been broken open for you. Does God heal? Sometimes. Does God save? Always, always, always. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning we get to feast, as Reverend Skipper reminded us, at the table that God has set before us. At this table, we rehearse our salvation story, the story of the triune God who saves us from sin and death and darkness and false worship and our idols, who saves us to have our hearts broken open for our world's redemption and restoration so that we can then be instruments and foretastes of God's coming kingdom, and who saves us for eternal friendship with our God. The Holy Supper that we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, of communion, and of hope. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent from the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us the obedience to, all obedience to, the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be welcomed back into friendship with our God. We come to have communion with this same Christ, who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. In the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us unto life eternal. In the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the true heavenly vine, in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit in his world. We come in hope, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and a foretaste of the feast of eternal love and joy, of which we shall partake 
when the kingdom of Christ has fully come, when with unveiled faces we shall behold him, made unto him in his glory, made like unto him in his glory. Since by his death and resurrection and ascension, Christ has obtained for us the life-giving spirit who unites us all in one body, so we are to receive this supper in true love, mindful of the communion of the saints, both those present with us in the body and those who have gone before. Maybe it's remembrance of Christ's sacrificial love in the face of our own sin and brokenness and frailty. Maybe, maybe it's a fresh communion with Christ in a season of distraction and exhaustion and busyness. Maybe it's shining hope in the Christ in whom all things are being made new, that even as we grieve and mourn and lament the conditions of our world, that we look forward to, that we anticipate joy and felicity, eternity with him. Whichever of these it is for you, remembrance, communion, or hope, we are reminded that as we run the race that has been set before us, marked out for us, that we find our nourishment, our fuel for that race at this table, here at Fellowship, here at Fellowship, all who love God and all who are seeking to follow God are welcomed to this table in Christ. So come, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come, not because of any goodness on your own part, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love God a little and you want to love him more and more. Come because he loves you and gave himself for you. Friends, will you join me in the words on the screen? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God, for it is holy and right to do so. Let's pray together. Holy and right it is, and our joyful duty to give you thanks at all times and in all places, O Lord, our Creator, Almighty and everlasting God. For you created heaven with all its hosts and earth with all of its plenty. You have given us life and being, and you preserve us by your providence. And yet you have shown to us the fullness of your love by sending into this world your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh for us and for our salvation. For the precious gift of this mighty Savior, we praise and bless you, O God, and with your whole church on earth and all the company of heaven, we worship and adore your glorious name. And at this table... Among the company of the great cloud of witnesses, we honor the perfect sacrifice offered once on a cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices, even as we proclaim the mystery of our faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ, who is our head. And as these grains have been gathered from many fields into one loaf and these grapes from many hills into one cup, Grant, O oh Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth and into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Friends, it was on the same night that Jesus was betrayed, that he gathered with his disciples around a table for a meal, and at one point in that meal, he took bread, and after giving thanks to God for it, he took that bread, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, and as often as you do so, do it in remembrance of me. And after a little while, that same night, he took the cup and he filled it. And he gave it to each of his disciples, saying to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the bread which we break and the cup which we bless is for us our communion with the body and the blood of Christ. We have for you an upgraded graphic of our traffic flow in the sanctuary. Come on, look at that, color-coded and everything. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there is a simple instruction, regardless of which section you are in, you will exit left and return right, okay? So hopefully that's simple enough. As the elders make their way forward, I'll just remind you, we have four stations in which we will be serving the elements to you, four in the front here. There's a gluten-free station underneath the cross, and there's also roving elders who, if you simply make yourself known, they can bring the elements to you. We take uh, communion here by intinction, which means that you'll uh, take a piece of bread and dip it in the communion cup and then partake of the elements as you return to your seats. We invite you to take uh, this and enjoy it, this feast that has been offered uh, for your behalf. Uh, take time to be prayerful and then come forward as the Spirit prompts and as the line allows and then return to your seats. Brothers and sisters, come for all things are now ready.
Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Let's stand and sing together. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was forfeit, the precious blood of Jesus
We've come to the altar in such a decently and orderly way. Wasn't that nice? You guys were so excited about that. Having feasted at the table of our Lord, now come and join us as we feast at the table for lunch. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.